0: Disrupting Japan, straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I've got a special bonus episode for you this week. Last month, I was part of a panel discussion hosted by Stanford and the Japan Society for Northern California. It was part of this year's Japan-U.S. Innovation Awards, and it was a good conversation, so I thought I would share it with you. The panel was moderated by Dr. Richard Dasher, and it was a discussion between me and Alison Baum, who is an investor and a prolific writer about startups and innovation. We talk about the surprising source of innovation in Japan, discuss why there are not more Japanese unicorns, and... Peer into our crystal balls to predict what Japan's startup ecosystem will look like in three to five years. It was a really good discussion, so I packaged it up for you as is, with no additional editing or commentary. I think you'll really enjoy it. I really didn't
1: do either one of you justice (laughs) in my introductions. Allison, tell us a little more about yourself and how you got to this point. How how does Japan figure into your thinking and so forth?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I actually work with two different venture capital funds. Uh, Right now I'm an investor at Trinity Ventures, where I focus on technology shaping the future of work. Um, And we invest primarily in Series A and Series B investments. Um, I'm also the co-founder and a venture partner of a fund called Fresco Capital. And our model is investing in companies at the seed stage and then helping them expand internationally. Also, focused on the future of work, education, and healthcare. So, I started Fresco when I was living in Hong Kong um, and had moved from New York to Hong Kong to launch the Asia business for an education startup called General Assembly. So, I saw how much innovation was happening in US ecosystems and how um, Asia had a lot of potential, but it was uh, maybe a couple years behind. And so by bridging that gap, there was a ton of opportunity to add value to the companies themselves, but also add value to the local ecosystems. Um, So that's when I founded Fresco, uh, along with a partner, and we started investing. I moved to Japan um, after, I guess it was midway through our second fund. Um, And I had always wanted to live in Japan, because I actually had a friend when I was 10... Uh, who I met at summer camp, who was from Tokyo, and she started teaching me Japanese, and so it was like my lifelong dream to live in Japan. So I was really excited at the opportunity, um, and moved to Tokyo, uh, ended up making uh, many investments, uh, mostly in the US and Europe, but setting those companies up in Japan, um, and also working very closely with corporate LPs uh, who are investors in our fund, and we connected them to our portfolio companies for investment and partnership opportunities. So I moved back to the U.S. about a year and a half ago.
1: Okay. So Tim, uh, tell us about yourself. How did you start uh, disrupting Japan?
0: Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> Great question. disrupting Japan itself started as a, a side project. Um, I, I've been in Japan about 25 years. I've, I've started four companies there in that time. Uh, I've s- sold a couple, bankrupted a couple, 50-50. <laughs> it's not too bad as far as startups go, really. Um, and I started the podcast just as kind of a lark. I thought it would be me sitting down talking with my founder friends, which it is. It still is. Uh, and I thought it might have a global audience of maybe 100, uh, but we're well over 10,000 people around the world listening now. And I, I think it's that, and, and the show itself, it's, I've interviewed over 150 startup founders in Japan and it's it's not talking so much about the you know their particular companies. Uh, it's it's more about what it's like to be an innovator in a culture that prizes conformity. Uh, it's about stories of like how they raise money, but sometimes how they manage to convince their wife and her family to let them quit Mitsubishi and start this crazy side project, or you know how they manage to recruit. The team when it was seen as incredibly risky and I I think it's, um, when when you talk with founders about innovation, when you talk to people who are actually growing their companies every day, you get a really different perspective on both innovation and the future of Japan than you do when you talk with um, academics or uh, government agencies and large corporations. And there's a, there's a really good reason for that, but that's probably best for a topic for another day.
1: <laughs> but uh, Yeah, okay. So I want to kind of push on this title, Japan's Surprising Source of Innovation. Tim, what were you thinking of when we discussed this title?
0: Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different areas I could talk about on that. Um, I think there's, for example, there's more as a percentage Uh, women founders in Japan than there are in San Francisco. I think that universities are playing a very different role, but I think one of the most interesting and underappreciated differences and sources of innovation in Japan is going to be Japan's mid-sized companies. Um, For historical reasons, there are a lot of companies that used to be part of a Keiretsu supply chain that have amazing technology. Um, if you look at the iPhone supply chain, of the 670-80 companies involved with that, a little more than half are from China. But number two is from Japan. And these are not low-cost suppliers. These are companies with like best in the world technology. Now, all of the all of these wonderful startup techniques. Uh, rapid prototyping, the ability to uh, address global markets that are being used by entrepreneurs in Stanford and Todai are available to all of these mid-sized companies as well. And Medi has, defines a, a mid-sized company, manufacturing company, as between 20 and 200 people. So they're not big companies. And in Japan, if you look at, if you, if you discount all the services companies and the companies that only sell locally. There's 165,000 mid-sized manufacturers in Japan. And if only, say, 5% of them start experimenting with productization, with marketing techniques, that could dwarf the amount of innovation and economic activity that is coming out of startups.
1: Okay, so and, Allison,
2: yeah. Yeah, to your, to your point, um, when I was living in Japan, the first question everyone asked me was, why are you here? <laughs> and it took me a long time to come up with the best answer for that, but what I realized is there are a lot of big global problems right now, and Japan is actually facing them first. So, it is a really interesting place to watch for innovative solutions to problems that everyone knows are coming, but aren't quite as urgent here as they are in Japan. So, for example, rapid urbanization, we are in the middle of kind of the largest mass migration in the history of humans, and that is from rural areas to urban areas. So, what does a city look like when it is? counting so many people, Um, you know, a dramatically aging population where you have a lot more old people than young people happening first in Japan. What are the economic consequences of years of very little immigration, something we're now sitting on the precipice of in the U.S. and Europe, and Japan is kind of figuring out how to deal with those issues. So the list goes on and on, particularly um, one of the areas I'm focused on now is automation, and in the rest of the world, there's a lot of fear of how is automation going to take our jobs away. Um, but Japan is really unique in its, uh, how it embraces automation from both a cultural perspective, but also from an economic perspective where there just simply aren't enough people to do the jobs that need to be done. So people are really excited for automation as opposed to fearful of it. So I think that's a... Um, it's some of the unique value. But in Japan.
1: when you moved to Tokyo, you moved as an investor, right, as yes. a venture investor coming from Hong Kong, which yeah. is a very different kind of atmosphere. What impressed you? What surprised you about what you found when you got to Japan as a venture investor?
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, one I've had the privilege of spending time in a lot of different startup ecosystems. And one thing that I find very frustrating is there is this conversation in every city or in every country about how do we become more like Silicon Valley? We need to be more innovative. And having the experience of moving to Japan and being kind of a weirdo (laughs) in a sea of um, people that were very different from me, I learned to embrace what made me different And that was really what allowed me to succeed. And I think the same goes for all startup ecosystems. Certain cultures are very good at certain things. And instead of wishing we were a different way, it's better to embrace what we're very good at. And I believe that Japan is uniquely good at creating processes and systems that scale. So while during my time in Japan, I didn't invest in any Japanese startups, I did bring seven of my international companies to the market in Japan, and that was a place where they could figure out their international expansion strategy and replicate that strategy in other places. So I think that's really what surprised me about the value of the Japanese ecosystem. So this
1: is really kind of at the heart of the conversation today is differences in the ecosystems. Tim, what would you say are the kind of differences in the ecosystems for startup companies in Japan than here?
0: i 'd say that uh, in some ways that the the Japanese startup ecosystem is a little more uh, rational from a business point of view than the the u s system is you don 't need to raise as much money uh, you don 't have to spend as much on marketing or on salaries as you do in the United States I'm
1: smiling because I say on rent
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or on rent um, but but I think also that The Japanese startups, particularly on the B2B side, there's a lot more sort of blue ocean areas. Um, The Japanese, the large Japanese enterprises just in the last five years are really opening up to working with startups. So when I started my first company there in 1998, if I wanted to work with a large company, I would have been pushed down through like three levels of subcontractors. But now... Every large company in Japan has a, a group that is focused on reaching out to startups and finding innovative companies, whether it's from Japan or from overseas, to work with and partner with and run pilot projects. So it's, it's a pretty amazing time right now in Japan.
1: But it's still not easy for a startup company, especially a foreign startup company, to build that kind of customer relationship in Japan, right? Yeah, Allison?
2: I mean, I just want to go back to something that you said. I want to disagree with you a little bit on the rational part. Because one of the interesting things, I mean, being in Silicon Valley, obviously valuations of companies can be very high and the cost is very high. Um, but the exits are also bigger. And in Japan, one of the unique things about the ecosystem is the ability to IPO at a fairly early stage. And so you see um, a lot less dollars raised because companies are exiting earlier, which in some sense is rational. I also think one of the biggest differences is that there are very few independent uh, early-stage venture funds. So a lot of the early-stage capital comes from corporates. And for corporate innovation arms, the goal is not necessarily financial return, but it's strategic value, and that can definitely distort valuations um, when investing there. So I agree with everything else you said. just wanted to point that out.
1: Go ahead, Tim.
0: No, I know. I I think you're right, but there's almost a two-tier system of startups in Japan. So there are startups that have attracted attention and are kind of... Blessed and are obviously on the IPO track, and everybody wants into those deals. Um, but Japan is very much uh, whether you're talking listed or startups, it's like a value investor's paradise. Mm-hmm. So there are plenty of opportunities at companies doing something a little bit different um, in an industry that hasn't attracted much attention yet, where the investors are demanding of, okay, how are you going to get to profitability in the next three years?" show me a rational business case for what you're doing that that still dominates the bulk of the startup industry there.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think we have that dynamic here, too, where you kind of have the haves and the have-nots and the people that are part of the group and people that aren't. And as someone who has spent a lot of time as an outsider, I found that somewhat disillusioning, especially moving back to the U.S. and going very deep in the Sil- Silicon Valley ecosystem you definitely want to believe that anyone could come here and be successful. But the unfortunate reality is, although most everyone will meet with you, it takes a long time to go deep in networks and get access to opportunities um, that are truly scalable. And I think that's true in both areas, where if you've got the pedigree, you've got you know, the right schools and the right business degree, and you worked at the right companies, it's a lot easier to grow versus if you're simply starting from scratch.
1: So from both of your comments, I'm reminded of one of our favorite, unfortunately, spectator sports here, which is unicorn watching. <laughs> and it does seem like there are almost no unicorns in Japan, one, maybe two companies. And I'm curious why you think that we have companies that grow to that kind of valuation here, but that's not happening there.
0: Um. This is probably the, the, the most common question I get asked when I talk about Japanese startups and innovation, not only overseas, but in Japan. You know, where are the unicorns? And uh, I've got kind of a two-part answer to that. First is that I think counting unicorns is a really foolish way to measure innovation. So the last time I checked, there were about 370 unicorns globally. And 10 years ago, there were zero unicorns. So does that mean we're 370 times more innovative than we were 10 years ago? No. China has more unicorns than the United States, and they're more highly valued. It doesn't mean China is being more innovative. Unicorns, the emergence of unicorns, I think is more of a financial phenomenon. And it's caused not so much by innovation, but by two macroeconomic macroeconomic trends. Uh, First has been since 2009, uh, the central banks all over the world have had a very loose monetary policy. They've pushed interest rates to basically zero, negative in some cases, and that's pushed a lot of money into riskier and riskier assets, and venture capital is about the riskiest asset you can put your cash into. So there's been a huge amount of money that's flowed into venture capital. Now, at the same time, laws have changed that have allowed startups to stay private longer. Um, Very liquid markets have developed in private, private shares. So we've got more money flowing in and staying there longer. So, of course, we're seeing more unicorns. Now, if you look at what's happened in Japan, the interest rate policy hasn't changed much. Japan has had a very low interest rate policy for the last 20 years. And the changes in the legal structure have actually allowed companies to IPO sooner rather than later. So I I think that looking at unicorns gives you a really distorted picture of innovation. That said, any healthy venture ecosystem needs to produce large, sustainable, economically meaningful companies. And I think Japan is starting to do that. Um, they're behind the U.S. in terms of quantity, but I think in quality it's really catching up, um, not only like the companies we see here today, but it, quite a few others. So I think that the progress we've seen in the last five years is astounding, but I think what we're going to see in the next 10 is, is going to be even more so.
1: Now, when you say quality, there's the aspect of the company's technology or its kind of business, but there's also the possibility for capital gain in the stock. And as an investor, both of you have had to deal with the situation here where if you really are not growing by 70 or 80% a year, uh, it's hard to get the venture capitalists interested at all for, you know, next round of funding. Uh, Do you see Japan ever reaching that kind of a hyper-growth kind of model Allison?
2: So I totally agree with Tim that the line between public and private has been pushed further and further out, and that's a big reason why we're seeing these very large valuations. I also think one of the biggest differences between U.S. startups and Japanese startups is, you know, at Trinity, we have five unicorns in our portfolio, and all of them are global. And a lot of Japanese startups can grow very large in the domestic market, but are not as aggressive about expanding internationally. And a big part of our mission at Fresco is to help evangelize a global strategy, and that was something that was really challenging in Japan. So I would also highlight that difference.
1: Okay, great. Let's take maybe two or three questions from the audience. We've got to keep tight on time, and we're a bit behind. Questions? Questions?
0: My company is starting to, to expand into Japan. Uh, what are some practical tips on, uh, as a startup uh to, to get the right level of uh, interaction and trust uh, based on your experience?
1: Alison, maybe that's for you first.
2: Yeah, I would say two things. One, if you're not doing this already, having people on the ground or you know, a founder being on the ground in Japan is absolutely essential. And the second is hiring and finding a, hiring the right talent, so finding the right country manager, and then third, finding a local partner. That was something that I experienced. Even though Fresco, we were a start, we were a venture fund, but we were a startup too, and it was really important to find local partners so that you can, uh, you know, insert yourself in that in that context and create trust with people you're trying to interact with.
1: Great, thank you.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. I think probably I, I think Allison's advice is spot on. Uh, I, I think there's a subtext to that you also need to be aware of, and that in the Japanese market, it's incredibly important to signal commitment to that market. Um, particularly if you're doing a B two B sales, uh, U.S. tech companies have a well-deserved reputation in Japan of flying in, saying we're going to solve all your problems just standardize on this technology and then pulling out of the market three years later. And so you're gonna be facing that skepticism. So having a team on the ground, uh, but kind of over-communicate, well, first be sure you are committed to the market. And once you do so, you're gonna to have to over-communicate that commitment and that understanding of the market to your potential customers and partners.
1: Okay, great, one more question.
2: Hello, thank you for your um, discussion. Uh, my name is Daisuke, am a graduate student here. Um, what do you think is the common reason Japanese startups struggle with expanding internationally? Is it because of the needs they tackle is specific to Japan, or is there any other reason? Yeah, I, we can both answer this question, because I think we both have ideas One is definitely English proficiency. I think Japan is well known as one of the countries with the worst level of English proficiency, and that can be very difficult. (laughs) Um, So I don't mean to be offensive, but I think it's true. Um, And second, I think what I loved most about Japan is the culture of respect and trust and partnership. And that's how I operate, even though I'm an American. But unfortunately, most other places don't operate that way. And if you're going to expand, you have to know how to talk the talk and you know, be kind of the cool kid on the block and you know, have very large aspirations for what you're going to accomplish. And that's just not inherent in Japanese culture. And I think that can lead to a lot of challenges when functioning in these international ecosystems.
0: I think in the last three or four years, there's been a real shift among Japanese startups about what going global means, and that's been a direct result of the failure of a number of early high-profile startups. So, going global does not necessarily mean going to the United States. A lot of companies very intelligently are looking at Southeast Asia now. A market entry into the U.S. is incredibly expensive, Um, it is incredibly competitive, and so a lot of companies now are looking to southeast asia for their first step of global expansion and quite a few founders have told me they're actually looking at australia as sort of a test market because it has very similar it's very similar culturally to the united states or the uk and it's a small enough market that they can experiment, find that product market fit. So i think that we're kind of entering a new a new phase Of Japanese startups attempting to go global. So the first attempt was the U.S. was the big market. That's where you had to be. Quite a few companies tried that. It didn't work out too well for them and it cost them a lot of money. A few were quite successful. And so there's a lot more caution and long-term strategy put put into it now to go in, in smaller jumps. And... Singapore, That we've, we're seeing some success there. So it's quite an interesting area to watch right now.
1: So I'm afraid we don't have much more time. I'm going to close up with kind of one final question from each of you. And that's really, if there's one thing you would like to see change or improve or suddenly open up in Japan... What would that one thing be, and do you think you'll see it in the next three years?
2: I think one is just the belief that it's possible. There's a lot of self-defeating conversations that I've heard in Japan, and I would like to hear people be more optimistic and excited about what makes the ecosystem unique and what is truly possible in terms of innovation at a global scale. And I think it will happen.
0: Okay, I think uh, what I'd love to see happen, and I'm starting to see happen, and uh, what I tell my corporate clients is that there needs to be a perception shift that innovation is not the result of getting lots of innovators together. It's a matter of systems. It's a matter of, you know, you don't need a society that's 100% disruptive innovators cannot survive. You know, even, even if we say for the sake of argument that, that San Francisco is the most innovative place on the planet, for the sake of discussion today. What's the percentage of people that are really being innovative? 1%, 0.5%? The, the bulk of humanity is, is keeping the lights on and, and teaching high school and, and driving trucks and coding software and selling software. But what San Francisco's really good at is connecting those 0.5% to each other and getting them the resources they need to, to grow. And what I'd love to see Japan realize um, is to stop thinking that following exactly, trying to, don't try to model Silicon Valley, uh, just figure out how to connect the incredible innovation and creativity that exists there today. And I think we'll see an amazing amount of innovation come. And I think, think we will see it.
1: Okay. Within three years?
0: Let's go to three to five.
1: Okay. <laughs> so keep coming back every year. Everyone, thank you. Uh, f-
2: please join me in thanking Tim and Allison for a great session.